What's happening, man? I'm uh, currently, I got five minutes and 16 seconds left on a COVID test to see if I have COVID again. Are you still testing for that kind of stuff? Is anybody still testing for that kind of stuff? Well, so here's what happened. I got a guy working for me. He got sick last week. Couldn't come in all week. He actually went to the hospital because he was so sick. They tested him for everything and he had strep, right? So that's what showed up on the test was strep. So they gave him antibiotics, blah, blah, blah. He stayed, stayed home. Uh, I said, hey, I was sick for like five months. Do not come in here. So he stayed home. I worked, I worked by myself last week. Anyways, his wife and kids are, are feeling sick, as are mine as well. But he took them to the doctor this morning. They all tested positive for COVID. Hmm. I was like, uh, because so did we like, I don't know, four months ago. What happened Dang, to dude. you can't catch COVID twice? Remember when that was being said? You oh, yeah. You can't right? catch you COVID twice. Immune system. You get it once yada, yada, yada. and that's that. No. So you want to do this concrete podcast thing? Let's do it. Let's do it. What's going on amazing in the concrete world? You know, it's been a pretty quiet week on the social medias for concrete. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it is nice. It's amazing when a few people are absent from a conversation, how things can calm down. Well, yeah, I mean, when... when Argumentative. How about it's, it's nice when the world doesn't have to be argumentative. How about that? When it's not a win-lose proposition, a zero-sum game. Right. You know, I think I think sometimes we feel like we have to win and somebody has to lose in everything. And it's ridiculous. Nobody has to win. Nobody has to lose. You can agree to disagree and move on with your life. And that's that. Agreed. Agree. 100%. Agree to disagree. Yeah. Agreed. So what are we going to agree to disagree on today? Well, you know, I actually made a post this morning. I was uh, looking for some photos of a sink I did a long time ago. And I came across photos of a lounge chair design I did for a trade show in Phoenix. It was a cool design, and I looked at it, I was like, oh man, I totally forgot about that chair. It was really cool. It was like redwood slats and a concrete kind of spine shape as a lounge chair, and the slats are are uh, interlocked into the concrete. It was a cool design. It was a cool concept, but the final product, when you sat in a chair, eh, it was lacking. It was fun to do. I learned some stuff through the process of doing it, but at the end of the day, it was a dud. You know, it just did not quite hit the mark. Design is something that's very near and dear to my heart. And original design is very near and dear to my heart. And the process of design is something that's very near and dear to me. And, you know, something that I know you don't feel like you design, but you design in a different way. You design materials. And that's equally the same process because you learn through failure. You make things, you get different raw materials, the manufacturer of the raw material says, this is what it's capable of, this is what it does. You test it, no, it doesn't. And you learn through through doing and testing, and then you're like, well, I'm not going to do that again, but this was kind of cool. I'm going to build on that. So you take the successes, you build on them, you take the failures, you drop those behind, and you keep moving forward. And that's the same thing with design of, of furniture, sinks, whatever else. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today is just the process of success and failure and how it's incredibly important to get a handle on what makes good design. I was a judge on a TV show, uh, it's almost 10 years ago now, 2014 is when it premiered, called Framework. And it was a really interesting process going through that, that show because there were some designers on the show that were very seasoned and had a lot of failure behind them. And because of that, they knew what would be good and what would be bad. And there were some young designers that were very new to the industry and did not have that history of failure. So they didn't have anything. Oh, my timer went off. They didn't have that history to build upon. What does it mean when the COVID test doesn't have any, any lines on it? What does that mean? It means it's all bogus. It's all conspiracy, Brandon. <laughs> I don't, well, here's I don't know a funny that. thing. Uh, so I did that, did that. Closed it. What are you supposed to do? Spit on it or something? I don't even know. I've never done one. Well, no, but this thing's missing something. This one's, there's normally a window right here and there's no window. This is just cardboard. I feel like, I feel like this test, they did not, I don't know. I feel like it's missing something. You gotta go get your money back. <sighs> I have to get another one. Um, yeah, whatever. 
So, uh, but they didn't have a, that, that history to build upon. And it was very interesting because those young designers would do things on, on one episode that were phenomenal. Oh my God, this pure genius. And next episode, a total dog turd, right? Mm-hmm. And it was that oscillation between awesome and terrible. And they didn't know what they didn't know. They had not yet built that foundation yet of, of knowing these things. And so that was great for me to see firsthand, just kind of watch that whole process unfold. And so that's very true to what we do. And, and so when we teach our workshops, which we have one coming up April 26th, 29th, Concrete Heroes Quest, Napa, California, come join us. When we teach workshops, we talk about this quite a bit. But we talk about the only way you're going to know what's good is if you know what's bad. And the only way you're going to know what's bad is if you try to make things that are going to be amazing. You know, this is going to be the yes. best thing ever. Ah, you, you know, you stay up all night. You had this idea. You're doing sketches. You can't wait to get to the shop next day. You make the form. You cast it. You cure it. You demold it. You're like, oh, this isn't so good. This looks like crap, right? I've had it happen a hundred times to yeah. where I had this idea that I thought was going to be the best thing in the world, and I demold it, and it's not. And initially, you try to talk yourself into it. You're like, well, eh, it could be, eh. but you know, you know, your intuition, the idea that you had, and then the, the finished product, they don't match up. And you have to be honest and say, man, this didn't work out. But then what you need to do is say, why didn't it work out? What is wrong with this? What is wrong? Is it the scale? Is it the height? Is it the angle? Is it the, uh, the ergonomics of it? You know, what is wrong with this piece? And once you start to dissect that, and then you say, okay, I get it. This is, this is what I did wrong here. You don't do that again. And then you build upon the things. Well, this was kind of cool. Let me take this and take that to the next level. And you build upon it. You build upon it. You build upon it. You build upon it. And at some point, you have a history, a framework, so to speak, of success and failure to pull upon so your future designs that you do are more and more successful. And that's the process. There's no shortcut. You can go to school, get your master's degree in industrial design. You can do all those things. But until you actually in practice do these things and you actually at the depth of your soul understand what's good and what's bad to you and it's different to different people, then you won't actually ever have a firm fundamental understanding and you'll, you'll struggle with design. You'll struggle with, I don't you know, I'm not a designer. I made this. It looks like crap. I don't know why. We well, don't know why because you haven't done enough times to know why. You have to do right. it as repetition to know why. Well, I actually pulled up while you were talking. I, I pulled up the chair. Uh, that you posted. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, in my opinion, obviously I never sat in it. To me, it just looks like the angles are off. That looks like it'd be difficult to sit in to me. It looks, you know, like, uh, now after all these years, I got a bit of a belly on me. So sitting in that chair, I could see, you know, what I, mean? I feel like I have a basketball, <clears throat> but other than that, it's interesting looking, looks like a spine. It does. And that was my, that was my, um, kind of my concept when I drew it up originally. It's a, it's a cool design. Like I said, there's things about it that are successful. There are things about it that are unsuccessful. And that's true with every design, even today, like things that I make, even things that I love, there's things that can be improved upon the next time I do it. And that's the process. That's the process. Yeah, I agree with that. We do. We we kind of talk about perspective and a lot of different podcasts talk about perspective, but if you just were born in Hawaii, in Hawaii, where the ambient temperature is like 73 degrees or 78 degrees, whatever it is, and somebody tells you about the South Pole or the North Pole, and you know, let's say this is before the age of, of smartphones and TV, like let's say this is 100 years ago, right? <clears throat> so I was like, oh yeah, there's this place, it's really cold, and you know, it's negative 20 year round, and there's polar bears, and it's all white. None of that would make sense. You would have no understanding of what that level of cold is. Oh, cold? Yeah, that's 62 degrees. No, cold's negative 20 degrees. But you don't know what negative 20 is because you've never experienced negative 20. All you know is this. And your frame of reference only goes this far. And it's the same with design. Until you experience kind of a full spectrum of failure, you don't know what you don't know. And you have to go through that process. And there's no shortcut. And there's no, well, I'm just going to make bad pieces and learn from them. Because you're not going to learn from them if you intentionally make a bad piece. You have to learn from things that you go into it 100% thinking this is the best thing you've ever done, and it's not. And then you're like, yeah. ah, that is the process. And there's no way around it, in my opinion. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I you know, from a looking at different, again, I, from what comes to the concrete stuff, 
<clears throat> I don't know. Honestly, I have no idea where I fall in the design category. I mean, even for an upcoming project, you know, I meet with a designer, we have a discussion, you know, we look at the space. In this case, it's a vanity. You know, I don't know, we talk about texture, we talk about the sink, depth, you know, blah, blah, blah. We have this kind of conversation of where it's going to go and who's going to be using it. That tells me, gives back and forth on what I think the slope might want to be, easy to clean or whatever the case may be. And like the one coming up, again, you, you tell me, I don't know if this has anything to do with design or just my own visual aesthetics. The conversation came up that the backsplash, one of the backsplashes was going to be taller than the two side backsplashes with the idea that, I don't know, they, they got something going on the wall right there. And so they wanted, you know, the, uh, let's, let's say some kind of board and bat kind of idea or slats or whatever. And so they wanted the one backsplashes, I think it was about eight inches. And then the two on the side were going to be four inches. And while we're having that conversation, you know, I'm just picturing that in my mind. I'm like, oh, that's going to look silly. In my opinion, I don't see how that's going to meld at all. So we ended up changing the backsplashes all together and then made them even all the way around. I think we ended up at six inches or something like that. So like I said, I, I don't know if that has anything to do with design. Um, to me, design, I like looking at your chair or some of the things you've done or some of the things that, to me, it's um, almost art. So what I do is I don't consider art. So I don't know. Now, until you talk chemistry, on the other hand. Well, that's what I'm talking okay. about. That's your art. Chemistry now is art. Yeah. Now, you, you push me into that end of it. And yes, people ask, I, I think we heard just a minute ago that some people wanted to use the word tinkerer. Oh uh, yeah, John's a tinkerer. Well, I saw it as a negative because, you know, again, I, I don't think of myself as a tinkerer. What I, because I don't know, do you, are you a tinkerer when it comes to design? See, I can't even say it to make it sound like it's cool. Maybe it is meant to be cool. I don't know. But I'm always working on chemistry and stuff because I'm always trying to work on advances, even something, again, I'm just going to say potentially I'm working on right now, the ability to work on what I'm trying to build on right now, the technology didn't even exist two years ago. So, you know what I mean? Like, even though I just got, I've done some trial runs with it, which quite frankly were abominations. So here you go. Yeah, it didn't work. Blah, blah, blah. But that failure, those failures alone, instead of just throwing the baby out with the bathwater and go, oh, nope, that didn't work. Due to the fact that I think the advances in this potential are real potentials, those failures continue to give me a foundation to build on so that I don't go back and go, yep, nope, I already know that didn't work. So here's what I think is going to work. And, the, and those failures were initially on paper. On paper, they completely failed. So we'll see what real life does. So I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think back to the early days of ICT and the many iterations that it's gone through to get to where it is. And, you know, you would, you'd come up with the formulation. It would go out. People would have success. People would have, uh, I wouldn't say failures, but they wouldn't perform at the level you wanted it to. Why is that happening? Sure. Okay let's figure out what's going on there. Let's drop that to the wayside. Let's build on the things that are working. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And it's through that constant uh, process of, you know, putting the the steel back in the forge and reheating it and then, you know, continue to sharpen that edge. That's the process that you were going through of just constant failure, adjustment, growth, failure, adjustment, growth. And you just keep moving it forward, keep moving it forward, keep moving it forward. You know, I remember what it was the chemistry was 15, 20 years ago. It was good, but it's not anything what it is today. Yeah, nothing like today. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's ref I mean, I look at that as refinement. Well, that's what I'm Which talking Which I guess about. in design, you're doing the word. same thing. Yeah. You're, you're refining your skills, you know. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and that's the process. And I, I just, I know people that are very, very good designers that went to very, very prestigious programs, whether it's RISD or Parsons or wherever they went. And we have these conversations. And they say the exact same thing. 
school's great. You know, it was whatever, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars for their education. Was it worth it? Probably not. But it was it was a fun process. But it was only when they got out and they really went into doing their thing and they went through that process of making things, hating them, learning from it, and then expanding that they really start to get a handle on what's good and bad. They didn't learn that in school. There was no way around it. You have to do it to get an understanding. And that's that's the way to do it. So, you know, you could spend four hundred thousand to go to school, or you could spend, you know, whatever our class is, twenty five hundred bucks to come to concrete design school and kind of get the same education and a lot more how to and how to do concrete. Huh, you just brought us something interesting. <laughs> just adding to it. Well, I just started thinking like a design school, mm-hmm. you know, college college courses built around design. Yeah. Now, from my point of view, biology, I understand. You know what I mean? The sciences, I understand. Physics, I understand. Because, you know, math, calculus, okay, I get all that. I don't know. I How do you... Again, I'm going to sound super ignorant, but I'm still going to ask it, and or naive at least. How do you teach somebody design? Well, there's a lot of ways to approach it. it depends on what you're you're focusing on. Are you focusing on uh, automotive? Are you focusing on furniture? Are you focusing on you know medical equipment? Whatever it is, there's different types of design, and I have friends in different industries that do different things. But I would say if you go to these university programs. What they probably focus on initially, if I had to guess, is going to be design history and then the mm. different types of design, periods of design, what those, you know, aesthetics were for that. Um, and then you kind of get to the modern day and then you start talking about materials, ergonomics, texture, scale, proportion, refi- you know, you talk about refinement. Mm. But in, in my mind, refinement would be something like Dieter Rams, where it's the, the least design is the best design where you just remove, remove, remove. Think of Apple, at least Apple of, you know, maybe 10 years ago because now they've kind of become a hot mess again. But yeah. where things were ultra simple, that's the best design. But you go through that process in school of learning those things, but then you get, you know, thrust out in the real world and, okay, well, you have a degree. What does that mean? It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing because when you go to get a job at Herman Miller or wherever it is you go to, they're going to want to see, well, what have you done? Show us what you, not, not your school portfolio. Like, what do you do? Show us what you do. Well, I haven't done anything. Oh, okay. Well, this guy over here has, you know, he went to community college and, uh, but he's got a great portfolio. So we're going to hire this guy. So anyways, my point is still, even with the best background, it's only when you get out and you actually start doing that, that matters. So, you know, I think you can teach fundamentals of design. And I think everybody is a designer, <clears throat> honestly. Like everybody is a hundred percent capable of design. It's just, you have to put in the work to do it. And a lot of people don't want to put in the work, you know, when they hear, well, I need to make hundreds and hundreds of pieces that don't work out. That doesn't sound fun. That sounds expensive. That sounds time consuming. That sounds frustrating. I'd rather just hop online and look at other people's stuff that I like and that other people like and just copy it. That's way easier. I can make money doing that. I don't have to go through the whole process. I can just jump to the front of the line, but you're doing yourself a disservice because you'll always just be the person that's a ripoff artist. You'll never be the person that had anything that had its own merit. You know, you just copied other people. Maybe that's, maybe that's good enough. But for me, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to do things that are innovative, that are fun, that are exciting, that I do have an idea and it does keep me up all night and I can't wait to get to the shop and I can't wait to start working on it. I've had those numerous times over 20 years and I love it when it happens, you know? Yeah. And you have well, to. There was a, a quote by somebody like, and that's why you won't be remembered. And I forget who that was. Yeah, it's like a Marcus Aurelius quote or something, but. Yeah. Yeah. But that could be said for anybody. I was watching um, a, a very short, I, I can't remember the, his name, Mark Cuban or something like that. One, one of the billionaires out there. And he was, he was in an interview with somebody and the person was asking him about startup businesses and new businesses. And the question that came to him from her was, well, you know, how does a new business, you know, start or how they get their capital, you know, one of the frustrations of starting a new business. And he was talking about, you know, you know, why things fail. So in this case, we're talking about design, I'm switching it to business, but it's very similar. And his thing is, you know, 99% of the time, the reason why a small business fail has nothing to do with capital. And he's like, for God's sakes, and don't take out a loan. 
which would be similar to what you're saying. You know, you basically leaning on somebody else for your design. Anyway, his reasoning was the 99.9% of businesses, new businesses actually fail is because they don't put in the effort. They don't put in the work. They, they had an amazing idea or they thought they did. And then when the rubber hits the road and you figure out like, oh my goodness, I need to put in this amount of time. The phone just didn't start ringing because I got the phone number. That's why businesses fail. Not because, you know, and, and I guess that's the way I look at a lot of things. And, and it's funny because I, my wife, I'm like, yeah, look at this. I agree with that. Because if you look on my whatever 20 plus year history, yeah, it, you know, running your own business, it's constant, constant. Um, and I don't mean constant like, oh, people keep calling you and stuff. Sure, that's that's part of it. But what you constantly revise even in yourself, it's a lot of work. It really is a lot of work. As you're seeing right now, right, as you're setting up your new shop again and moving, you know, you did it's, it's a lot of work and it's that amount of work that the easy road sometimes, and for some, it may be extremely fulfilling. And for some people not is you just go work for somebody else. That somebody else who, you know, dictates your schedule, dictates your pay, you know, dictates how fast or slow you move up the ladder, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's nothing wrong with those choices per se. Um, but anyway, I don't know how if that completely goes with what you're trying to say with design, but it takes a lot of work. It does. Yeah. 100%. And dedication. Hundred percent. Yeah. With yeah, all of it. Dude, this shop, I knew it was gonna be a lot of work. I knew it was gonna be a lot of work when I bought it, but it's it's always more than you anticipate, you know. You're like, oh, I'll paint it, I'll do some landscaping, I'll change the fence, uh, uh you know, oh, I'll come in here and change the lighting a little bit. Dude, I mean, I don't know. I've been working on it now for eight weeks solid or whatever it's been. And uh, I still got a ways to go because once I got into it, I just kept kept digging deeper and, you know, picking picking the rust away and the hole just keeps getting bigger in the ship and water keeps pouring in. So that's where I'm at now where I pretty much just gutted everything that could be gutted and, and I'm now I'm putting it back together and it's fun. But I'm doing it myself. Like I'm literally doing it myself. I'm out there cutting concrete with a with a walk behind saw and jackhammering concrete and building gabions and power washing the building and doing all these different things, running electrical and wiring lights, doing all the stuff, doing all the demo, doing all the stuff because I can't afford to pay somebody else to do it. And so, you know, at some point somebody comes to building like, oh, it's a really nice building. It's really nice because I did it because there was no way I could afford to pay somebody to do it, right? When I built my house in Arkansas, People would come in, I'd get, you know, a trade to come over, like a drywall guy to come over to give me a quote on doing some some drywall. There's some things I'm good at, drywall's not one of them. And uh, so I'd get like a drywall guy to come over and he'd be like, oh man, this is a really nice house. I'm like, no, 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 let's not go down that road because then they'd send me the quote and the quote would be bananas like crazy because they thought I was loaded. I'm not loaded, bro. I only have nice things because I made them myself. That's the only reason I have them. I wouldn't have them otherwise. And, you know, so same with the shop is the only reason it's going to be a cool, nice shop is because I personally had to make it that way. Put the time in. Exactly. See, that's what the saying. effort, that, the that energy. Go, yeah. Across to everything we're talking about. Yeah. If someone has the inspiration, whatever, to be an artist, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to paint your first, I don't know, you know, Picasso, if you're well, something that people stand back and go, oh my goodness, you're not going to do that the first time. You know, and it's it's hard to balance. Well, you may not do it a thousandth time. You may never do it. That's the other thing is you might go your whole life never have something that was publicly successful, meaning that there was a public response. But it doesn't mean you weren't successful. I agree. So I think people equate that, too, with public reaction. You know, that's a business side, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're successful or unsuccessful. Who am I thinking of? Sam Maloof. During Sam Maloof's life, there was a long period of his life where he was making this phenomenal furniture and wasn't getting any traction. Hmm. You know, only towards the end of his life and then after death has he really seen the the interest in what he did. And I think that's true for a lot of a lot of great designers and artists over time is during their life, they weren't quote unquote successful. It was only after their death that did they get the notoriety that, you know, they were probably striving for all those years and never saw. That's the nature of, of 
of life, I guess. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, yeah. it does seem that way. Yes, sir. Uh, what else, John? What do we got with concrete? Let's see. Concrete. Well, I mean, for so those people interested, Martin Haddock has a way that he's been applying ICT. His final applications, I'm going to call it a roll-on method, which is interesting. If anybody's interested, he put some videos on the ICT Reactive forum page. And I was giving him some grief. But, you know, for the last, uh, I don't know, I guess he told me about it a few weeks ago. And him and I had phone conversations on it. So I've been practicing it myself. I don't know if I'm going to switch my methods, but I will say that I'll tell you what, it's, it's very cool. It, um, it makes, makes the final sheen of the product very soft again, comparatively speaking. Um, I don't know, man. So, you know, that I, what's always fun for me always, this is just, is that, you know, maybe this goes hand in hand with everything we're talking about, but I I made a joke the other day with somebody. I'm like, you know what, man? I could take your cotton underwear, dirty underwear, and apply ICT and make it look brilliant. I mean, I've been doing this so long, you could almost give me any applicator. So it's really, really fun to me when somebody has or starts doing their own method, which then I need to go and practice. So... I've been having fun doing that the last few days and it, and it's really nice. I mean, the, the sheen and everything left behind is very nice. I've been stain testing, scratch testing, blah, 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 blah. It's doing very well. So if that's something anybody's interested in, you know, go check it out. Most of us, or I say me personally, I don't know, man, I don't know if I'll change my ways cause I'm so used to it, but, uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely pretty cool. Still using a three three eighths microfiber roller as his final applications, but instead of like you know spreading out and back rolling the kind of conventional techniques a person might do with a a uh, v- you know different versions of urethanes, he's doing more like a spray bottle spritz, and then using the roller as a way to I don't know I'm going to say gently lay out or even out the fine mist that he puts out. So, so that, I mean, to me, that was pretty new and I've been having fun with it. I had to make my own slight modifications to make it work for myself, but there you go. A different way of applying sealer. Oh, I mean, that goes back to design. That is that process. I'm sure Martin, you and, and hundreds of other designers, artisans, craftsmen have attempted other ways to apply ICT versus what is recommended. Mm -hmm. And that's how they arrive at these different looks and textures and sheens and different things. You know, that look is not something that you were achieving with the way you were doing it. And only through the process of attempting something new, did it work out? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But that's how you get that fundamental understanding. So yeah, I mean, it all kind of falls back into that whole conversation we're having, in my opinion. Well, there's no question. I as things go, uh, just put on my own. I'm, in fact, I'm after this podcast headed down the shop, looking at things from a different thing. I would love to. I mean, this sounds silly, man, and is I'm not saying this to pump you up, but like when you sit down and draw something out, dude, I can't do that. <laughs> but you can, I, you can. Yeah, you just got to practice, John. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. got to practice. No, again, I, that's what I'm saying. When we say time. If I dedicated the time to doing it, to sitting down and uh, I'm going to, you know, designing concrete and cool textures or shapes or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, I would say for me, that's a weakness. I have not put in the time, period. I'll be honest with you. I have not put in the time. Yeah. yeah. That's I your passion. your passion see, is chemistry. Yeah. I could yeah. Uh, unde- undeniably, based on other things that I do, for people who are interested in that, but they have a reservation about what they're doing or if they can do it. You just got to start doing it. You know, I, I think my son hit me the other day. like, dad, I think I'd like to write a book. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. So start writing little stories, you know, start somewhere. 
And, and then eventually I think you'll get to the point that if writing is something you're that interested in, you'll end up there, but you, you know, you, you have to refine your process to get there. That's how I see what we're talking about right here. Put in the time, put, put in, in the, the effort. Yeah. yeah. If you want, if, if that is your passion, if it's not your passion, then don't put in the time. Like chemistry is not my passion. That's your passion, John. I have no it, interest it in putting it. It should be your passion, though. It's not, man. though, dude. Like drywall isn't my passion. There's drywall guys out there that are phenomenal, and it, they are true craftsmen. I haven't met one yet, but I know they exist. But I, they're out there. And chemistry is your passion. You love chemistry. I don't love chemistry. That's not my thing. I just don't love it. It's not my, you know. But I do love design. That's what I love. And that's why you and I have been such great friends. I've posted a photo of you and I in 2011, and I think it was in Nashville. I don't know where it was. Uh, or maybe it's Las oh, Vegas. Oh, no, that photo? Yeah, yeah, no, that actually was. That was in Nashville. Nashville yeah. or Las Vegas? No, I think that was at a, at the conference. Was it? Um, the first one that Decor put on. Yeah. But you and I have been friends for all these years because of that symbiotic friendship we have of this is your passion, this is my passion. Those two things work well together. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. So I guess the other thing is surround yourself with people that are better at things than you are. You know, I say that with all business, like you need to have a great bookkeeper, a great accountant. You need to have people that are better at things than you are in your team, you know, and, and for me and you, you're far better at chemistry. I, I understand the basics of it. You know, I have conversations. I understand the concepts behind it, but it's not my passion. I don't, you know, I, I, you call me up. You're like, oh my God, oh, I'm heading down to the lab right now. I'm going to do these tests. I had this idea. Dude, ah! check this out. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, John, sounds cool, bro. You know, yeah. I'm excited for you, but it's not exciting to me. I don't. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Well, I agree with that with everybody. You know, if, um, if people want, if you want to be successful, surround yourself with successful people. If you, you know, I mean, and I hate to word a little bit envious, maybe that's not the right word, but you know, I, I believe truly if you're aspiring to something, you know, do your best. Maybe for a few minutes, you may be at a pinnacle, but, you know, ha surrounding you yourself with the kind of people that are moving directions you would like to move helps you get there, in my opinion. Oh, 100%. You know? Birds of a feather flock together. No question. You yeah. know, if you, if you get to the point and you're, you know, whatever, falling backwards. Well then, you know, you surround your a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of people that are failing in their life. And I can pretty much guarantee you, you're going to fail as well. Sound your, surround yourself with people who are working hard and escalating in their life and whatever, maybe it's in their relationships or businesses and you can lean on them. A very similar con conversation happened recently, which again, I know this isn't concrete per se, but as an, I don't know much about investing, right? You and I have talked about this some, retirement funds and et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't just about learning the language, but, you know, so I've started getting around people who, one, that's their business, and then two, people who have been making different choices than me over the last, whatever, 30 years of their life and have become very successful in setting those things up. And so that gives you something to learn from to build on your own. That's, that's in concrete as well. Sealer chemistry as well. Design as well. You know, that's, that to me is anybody who's trying to be successful in what they're doing, running your business, you know, building cool concrete artisan things. You know, you and I both have seen some amazing artisans come and go. And it's, they certainly did not lack skill, in my opinion. They did not lack skill. What they lacked was being around other people and figuring out how to take their and morph their skill into something successful that, you know, fed their families and kept their doors open. I 100% agree that birds of a feather flock together, surround yourself with people that are like-minded. And when we talk about, because this whole conversation started on design, we talked about design, Surround yourself with people, in my opinion, that share the philosophy that design is everything. Design is the most important thing with what we do because Kodiak Pro, in my opinion, is the best materials. ICT is the best sealer. But if you make dog turds out of 
Maker Mix and ICT, you're not going to sell. So you need to be making things that people respond to. And so design is incredibly important. So surround yourself with people that love design, that believe in original design. You know, there's a lot of naysayers that say, oh, it doesn't exist. Well, look at their portfolio. Uh, okay. Yeah, I understand why you say that. So surround yourself with people that that believe in that. And that's what I've done over the years. I have friends that are are very, very talented designers that uh, that's their passion. And that's what they do. And they believe it. You know, and they hear the same trope that great artists steal, blah, blah, blah. And we just like laugh. We're like, oh, my God. I mean, I guess if you've never experienced originality, then you'll feel that way. Because these are the lies you tell yourselves so you sleep at night. But once you put in the work and the failure and then you have the breakthrough and then there's success, then you're like, oh, my God, I get it now. I get it. All those years, I thought that that was all a lie. I thought, you know, you just flip through books and you take this from this and that from that and you morph it together in this Frankenstein thing. And that's how design works. No, that's not how it works. I, I, mean, I guess you could. This is a, kind of a collage idea. You cut out bits of magazine and glue it together. And okay, maybe. I think I want to say, John, is you kind of mentioned lean on people. With design, in my opinion, that's almost a solitary process. And, mm. and it should be for originality's sake, because if you're sending sketches to other people, what do you think about this? Well, number one, that's designed by committee. Design by committee never works. When you start asking people's opinions, everybody has a different opinion. What would you do? What would you change? What would you do? Whatever it started off as and what it ends up you know, being are two drastically different things. So I'm not a fan of design by, by committee. But I really feel that the only way to have original thought is to kind of be insulated from all that, to, to go in, you know, meditate, hike, do these different things to where you're insulated and disconnected and you can actually think about things. And so, you know, I have my best ideas, honestly, every morning when I take a shower, I think about things I have to get done during the day, but a lot of times that's when I have these design ideas. It's just I'm taking a shower, the water's running, I can't hear the craziness that's going on in the living room, I don't hear kids yelling and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there's just that moment where your brain can kind of like have that clarity for a second. And you have these sparks of, of uh, uh, inspiration, maybe. And that's the way it's always been for me, <clears throat> is um, just a, a spark, just a, a fleeting idea that I take and, and do something with. That's how the erosion sink came about. It was literally a spark that was just a thought for a half second. And that's what led to that. Same thing with the Muskoka chair, which has has been by far my most successful product I've ever made. But I was taking a shower. I had this idea. I got out. I drew it one-to-one scale on a piece of MDF. And we built it that day. That's, that's mm. for me how it happens. It's not a long, drawn-out process. It isn't like, you know, I do sketch after sketch after sketch after sketch. Not there's anything wrong with that. That's just a different process than, than my process. But, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that, that that's how, I don't know, 99% of my whatever di- ideas come about. Um, you know, as you know, when you've called me, like, man, why are you always pacing? I'm like, because I was thinking about something. Pacing and snapping <clears throat> your fingers. Yeah, and stuff on my fingers. That's exactly what You'll I hear do. John. You'll call him up for, for a question. He'll go, you'll hear him walking back for us. like, well, yeah, what I would do. I'm like, dude, are you pacing right now? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're <laughs> yeah. snapping your fingers? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> um, yeah, and then uh, I said the only difference is, if this is a difference, is when those kind of things come to my mind, which is maybe outside of thinking – then I'll call some of the chemists that I know in that industry and say like, Hey, have you heard of anybody doing this? Or, you know, does the ability for this to happen even exist? And, and they'll be like, Hey, you know what? Give, give Mark so-and-so a call. And, you know, he's, he's working with this industry. I'm like, okay. Then I call Mark and like, Hey man, Joe told me to give you a call. Yeah, no. Hey, Schuler, what's up? Hey, is this even possible? So, I get it. So that's what I mean by leaning on other people. And in what I do, that's possible. But yeah, I can definitely see if you're, if you're trying to come up with originality based on other things. Yeah. I mean, you know, lock yourself into a, your dark spot for a moment that you can med- meditate on. I can definitely see that. Transcendental meditation. You ever done transcendental meditation, John? I'm going to say no, because I don't know what it is. Yeah. I, I, I used to do it. Twice a day, you meditate for 15 minutes. Yeah? Yeah. 
before I had kids. Now I have kids. I haven't had any time, which is probably when I should be doing it when I have kids, but I just, I need to get back to it. But transcendental meditation, it's a, it's a whole thing. And what's the idea? Well, the idea is, and there's been a lot of studies on it, but the idea is that your brain, when you're sleeping, it's in, you know, REM or whatever, and the, the brain waves are, are at a certain uh, amplitude. And then there's a deeper rest below that, and the brain waves slow down even further. And hmm. you get to that through transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation essentially is you have a mantra they give you, and a mantra means nothing. They tell you, the mantra is nothing. But it should be something that means nothing to you. If your mantra is red truck and you repeat the mantra, you'll be thinking about a red truck, right? So that's not good because you'll never, you'll never go into that deeper state of relaxation. And so they give you a mantra. It's a Sanskrit word. And they'll tell you it literally means nothing. And you shouldn't try to make it mean anything. And, and if it sounds like something to you, then let's get you a different one that doesn't sound like something to you. Because it needs to be hmm. something you repeat in your mind. And you close your eyes and you repeat the mantra and you repeat the mantra and you repeat the mantra. And at some point, you stop repeating the mantra. And at some point, your mind, you're awake, but your mind, the brain waves have slowed way down. And they've, they've done university studies on this where they hook people up to monitors and they, they monitor what's going on. And then you think, did I leave the stove on? And your brain pops back up. You know, your brain waves spike again. You start thinking about, is the stove on right now? Did I leave the stove on? I don't know. And then you're like, oh, well, let me repeat my mantra, 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 mantra. And then you slowly go back down. And at some point, you're just there again. And then you're like, do I, do I need to get uh, sugar when I go to the grocery store later? And then you, you're back up again, you know, and it's this process. But that's, that's the process of transcendental meditation. And your brain waves get way, way more relaxed than even, than even deep sleep. And interesting. And what's, what, are, what are we looking for in a benefit here? Uh, the benefit is clarity. The benefit is, uh, you know, having a very clear perspective on things. You're, you're supposed to meditate in the morning and uh, in the evening. And, you know, you, you become more focused, you become more able to accomplish tasks. You're not so frazzled. Mm. You know, you might have some breakthrough ideas because you're not distracted by all the, the things that are, that are surrounding you. For me, it was increased energy. When I meditated, dude, my energy would shoot up. Really? Because it was almost like I took a power nap. You know, 15 minutes of that, and then you're like, all right, time to get to work, and you're like ready to go, you know? You didn't feel tired. Now, there's a lot to it, but transcendental meditation, they kind of they talk about it as think of a, a submarine. And the submarine, you know, you can, you can land on the bottom of the ocean, and that's where you want to be. And then you'll have a thought, and the submarine will come back up. But then you start doing your launch and the submarine starts sinking again and it lands on the bottom again. It's just sitting there. And that's where you want to be. And that's what monks are doing. You know, when you see these monks uh, meditating, they're trying to be in that space of just complete disconnection. You're not thinking of anything. You, you know, the whole no mind thing where there's no thought. You're just in in space and time and, you know... You're, you're existing, but you're not thinking. You're just being. And that's a hard place to get to, but it's nice when you do get there because it's, it's so rare because all day, you know, your phone's buzzing at you and you're getting text messages and, you know, you're getting bombarded with advertisements and Starbucks and caffeine and Oprah and whatever's going on. Right. So it's nice to, to have that moment every day. Yeah, I can see that. I think you, I think you could benefit from it. You're... you're wound up sometimes so yeah i'm always wound up but you know it's i think i told you this the the, what i learned as a kid for me to focus is i actually need noise i need noise and and what i've taught myself to do good bad or otherwise is if i can drown out all that noise that's when i could focus i i was never the person that could go to a library (laughs) you know what i mean and study I can't, it, yeah, none of that works for me. Yeah. That's the no. thing about transcendental meditation is also they have you meditate in a place that isn't quiet because no. of that, because you don't need to, you don't want to become reliant on a dead quiet space. So you can meditate outside, there's birds chirping, there's wind blowing, there's cars driving by, you can meditate at the airport while you're waiting on your flight, you know, and there's announcements and people and all this kind of stuff. You can meditate on an airplane while you're flying, it's you know, that whole thing. You can, you can meditate anywhere. Um, and it's kind of that whole process of that becomes, you, you train your mind 
to still go into those deep stages of relaxation, even in the midst of the comings and goings of the world around you. Sure. And so that's part of it as well. So yeah. Well, there you go. Look man. into it. Look into it. Get, well, look into it and anybody listening, you know, start seeing where that can fit into your lifestyle. And ultimately, if that helps you focus on everything from, from business and clients and your, except, I mean, it could be very beneficial. I'll it try. Be. It could be. Yeah. You have to go take a class. Class is like 2000 bucks. The class is a little, eh, I'm torn on it. You know, I mean, it's a whole thing. But really, the whole point of the class is to give you your mantra. That's what it's, that's what it's all for. You go there and they, they teach you the process. Well, I just taught you that process. I told everybody the process. That's the process. Uh, but they teach you the process. And you take two or three classes where you actually meditate. And then at the end of it, there's like a little ceremony. And they give you your mantra. And that's your mantra. And huh. you don't share it with anybody. You don't tell anybody. You don't write it down. And yeah, there's that. That's one form. There's all kinds of meditation out there. there there's uh, mindfulness meditation where you focus on your breathing. That works good too. And that's not nearly as, uh, what's the right word, uh, in depth maybe, as transcendental, where all you do is you just focus on breathing in and out, breathing. And also all you do, you just focus on that. And you kind of get to the same space where your mind just kind of keeps relaxing, 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 and then you're in that space. So that's another way hmm. to do it. Yeah. So somebody hit me up on our one of our pages on Facebook, but asked about a fireplace. He needs to cast a fireplace surround, and the owners want him to return the surround a couple inches into the you know firebox and have it match up to the fire brick in the firebox. He's worried about the heat, especially on the upper part, uh, kind of the the mantle area. You know, it'll get hot, but will it get so hot that it cracks? It shouldn't. I mean, if there's that much heat building up right there, then they have a bigger problem of of their fireplace. But over the years, he asked, well, you know, should I be concerned about doing it? Is there anything to worry about? And Michael Paul- Paulson joined in and said, you know, eh, you know, it's never really been a concern for him. He He's a fan of more traditional concrete, not right. the, the fiber reinforced, and I get that. But I've done fireplace rounds like that, too, where they were turned in. I've never had a problem. Never had a call back. Now, could I have somebody call me back, which hasn't happened, but could I have somebody call me back and say, hey, I got these little cracks? Yeah, that could happen. It hasn't happened, but it could. And if it did, I'd say, yeah, those aren't structural. That's just you build a fire, creates heat, it expands a little bit, it contracts a little bit, expands and contracts the concrete. And over the years, it'll create a little hairline crack. It's not structural. It's just from the expansion and contraction. It's nothing to worry about. I haven't had that happen, but I would say that would be the worst case scenario for a fireplace surround. Not a not a fire bowl, that's a different thing, but a fireplace around. What are your thoughts, John? No, the same. I, I, see, I'm one of those, just as cheap insurance, I would probably, on the backside where they wouldn't be seen, you know, embed some of that glass, you know, small glass rebar or something like that that expands and contracts with the concrete. And that way, if if anything did move it's all going to move together and you have something holding it together more than just your just the fiber but other than that no i mean you know every my thought would be most of it would heat up fairly evenly as opposed to what you just said the um, fire tables and stuff so yeah I, i don't see that as a problem at all you know i always hear people ask about fire bolts with concrete can we do it can we do it i've done it i have a fire pit design called the triangulum fire pits triangles pretty cool but i recommend you do not use wood burning fires in it because wood burning fires get exponentially hotter than a gas fire and gas fires the fire ring is elevated above the concrete so the heat isn't directly against the concrete there's an air gap underneath it and i've had success with that i've I've not had any issues whatsoever i know guys have done fire tables where the wind will blow the flame and the heat will crack the concrete where the heat's building up around the flame. In those cases, they put those glass walls around the flame, those little fire or uh, wind blocks they put up, the glass. You'll see that with like restoration hardware, fire fire tables and stuff. But I get the question, you know, can I use refractory cement in the mix? Now, I'll get your opinion on this because you're the chemist, but I've always been told that refractory cement does not do well with moisture, that it shouldn't be outdoors exposed. You know, they'll put it in a flue of a fireplace. They'll do it in a kiln. They'll do it in places like that. But those things aren't outside in the elements with water. What are your, what are your thoughts? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. They don't, they don't do well with moisture at all. 
yeah, they, so they, they always have to be covered up in some way. But um, but the other, there's a big misconception that somehow fire brick doesn't crack. Oh, they certainly crack and they certainly degrade over time. So I don't know. I mean, I guess possibly it's in some ways might have some attributes better than Portland cement. But but in general, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I. I hear that a lot, you know, fire clay, add that, you know, uh, fire brick, but I don't know, man, <laughs> it all ends up working. Well, isn't fire brick largely what makes it work is just highly aerated, kind of like lava? Well, aerated and it's more along the, you know, pure aluminum cements kind of idea, uh, which again, they, they have their place. They do well in certain situations. So, you know, can it be added in? Well, yeah, it certainly can. I guess what I'm saying is a, there's a misconception that by adding it means at least the fear here would be cracking. And like, well, no, that, that's not going to – I don't see that stopping anything personally. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, I live in a house. My house is 100 years old. It has uh, fire brick in the fireplaces, and they're all cracked. doesn't matter. That, I mean, it was, no, it it was in some ways designed to do that. They, they anticipate it's going to happen over time. You know, so no, yeah. I look at more like it as a, as an insulator in exactly. my opinion. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Um, but as durability, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, based on what we're talking about here and a fireplace around, eh, I, I don't know. I, I think that might be going to a depth that you think you're trying to fix a problem that's or a potential problem that's probably not going to happen anyway. And it's not going to fix it. You know, my fireplace and every fireplace I've ever had, if it's getting so hot on the front of that mantle that it's going to break the concrete, you know, we hang stockings at Christmas right there. It would catch those things on fire if it's getting that hot. Uh, we have garland hanging on the fireplace at Christmas. So it doesn't get that hot in that location. It'll get warm. You put your hand on it. Yeah, it's warm, but it's not, it's not going to be, you know, 150, 200 degrees hot. It might be 100 degrees hot. But it shouldn't get so hot that it breaks the concrete. And if it does, then there's a bigger problem with that fireplace design. Agreed. Yeah. 100% agreed. Well, John, what else do you have? Anything? No, that's it for me, man. Yeah. I'm anxious. I'm actually headed down to the, uh, when you called me to do it, I'm headed down to the shop right now to go work on some stuff. So Awesome. Well, That's what I got going. I wish you great success with whatever it is you're working on. Thank you, my friend. You're welcome, dude. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I am going to get off here and go get another COVID test, one that is complete, and take another COVID wow, test. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good luck to that. I hope you're uh, hope you uh, healthy. Thanks, man. Until next week. As always, good talking to you. Adios, amigo. Adios. <laughs>